Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, uh, the podcast where we watch every single movie ever nominated for a Best Picture Oscar and tell you whether or not they have stood the test of time. Uh, I'm Susan Raslin. And I'm David Daw. This week we are wrapping up the nominees for, is it 1927 to 1928? I believe so, yes. The movie we watched this week was The Racket, which was the only one of the three movies nominated that is not about World War One. I. I kept waiting for them to just go, we can't send him to jail, World War One just broke out. <laughs> But it never happened. World War One did not at any point occur in this picture. So I guess it takes place in what was the current time for when the movie was made? That was my feeling about it. I'm kind of trying to find something about the play rather than the movie. Because of all the movies we watched, I think all three were based on plays. Um, certainly... Seventh Heaven I know was. Seventh Heaven was. I'm not sure if Wings was, but maybe? I thought there was something about Wings being an adaptation of something, um, but it might have been an adaptation Definitely of like a novel. had the feeling today, after watching three silent films in a row, which, my God, if I never watch another silent movie again, it would yeah. be too soon. Oh, boy. Wow, it is a totally different medium than theater when you don't have any words. <laughs> Yeah. And the fact that they kept basing it on plays was really remarkable to me. There's maybe four pages worth of dialogue in any of these movies. <laughs> Probably yeah. more in Wings. To me, yeah, just because Wings was so fucking long. Like, I will say, one of my one of my prime arguments for this movie is going to be, it's an hour and 25 minutes long, Susan. That's all, that's all there was to that was it. A, that was like 95% of what I liked about this movie, because I hated it. I really, you know, I was going to say I really liked it until the last 20 minutes that I swear to God I had to watch three separate times because I kept just like zoning out for three seconds and going like, wait, what happened? Did I miss 15 minutes? What's going on? A good 95%, I keep throwing out these 90 percentages, yeah. but like 95% of the title cards were in the last 15 minutes. Yeah. So if you like looked away for a second, you missed what was going on. One of the things I liked about it was this sense that, like, the title cards were just, like, they went through the script to the play and were like, what's the best line in the scene? Oh, it's this exit line. And now that's the entire scene now. <laughs> the entire scene is just this one line. There's just, like, one plot-related line, and then somebody gets a good exit line or just yells horses for some reason, and then you're off yes. to the next scene. <laughs> and, and, like... After just how fucking interminable the second half of Wings was, just the fact that scenes would be like two minutes long and then there'd be a new scene was so exciting to me that it really dragged me through the first like two thirds of this movie before uh, I started having any problems with so it. We should we should probably explain what it's about, but I'm going to have to say, I, well, I'm going to try because I don't know that I know. Okay. Uh, so it will be funnier if I do it. Sure. Uh, so there's a there's a cop in Chicago. Your guess is as good I'm, as mine. It's, un unnamed city. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm saying Chicago just because the movie was banned in Chicago for its representation of corrupt cops and politicians, um, which I find hilarious because that was basically like Chicago pointing a giant arrow at themselves being like, this is us. <laughs> like, no other city did this, and Chicago said, well, we certainly can't have this uh, playing in, in our city where this happens all the time. Yeah. So anyway, there's a cop in Chicago whose name is Captain McQuig, uh, which is in fact a real name. I looked that up because I was like, that is not a real name, but it is, it's a real name. Yeah. Who ostensibly has some kind of relationship with the local crime boss whose name is Nick Scarcy? Yes. Okay. I'm not just saying that because it's Scarface. That's actually his his name. But it's never really clear that they're actually like in bed together. Oh, they're the totally they're totally not. Like it's okay. this weird playful relationship of like a playful antagonism. Yeah, it was seriously homoerotic though. Like oh, all one, of their shots yes. together are their faces like inches apart. Yeah. And I'm just waiting for them to make out. And then something happens where, like, one of the rival gang members gets killed, and in a related incident, McQuig gets put into a precinct in the country. Uh, And then a bunch bunch of reporters are like, we want your story about what happened with Scarcy. And he says, you know, I'm not going to give you my story go get it from Scarcy. Then his kid brother, Scarcy's kid brother, who is also a gangster, is riding down the road at night with his fiance, whose name is Helen Hayes, which I totally thought for like half of the movie that I had hallucinated that her name was Helen Hayes. Because they kept referring to her as Miss Hayes. And I was like, I'm just projecting onto her the name of one of the most famous actors who has ever lived. Nope. But no, her name is actually Helen Hayes. Uh, yep. Fun fact, the actor Helen Hayes, that was her stage name, but based on her mother's maiden name. So it's not like she took it from this movie. It's just a totally wild coincidence. Okay. Anyway, Helen Hayes is like a nightclub singer. Yeah. And she has kind of a tiff with her fiancé, who is this total stock character of dumb little brother gangster she gets out of the car he somehow gets in a hit and run then gets arrested taken to the police station so does helen hayes yeah scarcy comes down to save his kid brother helen is like i hate you kid brother i'm gonna talk scarcy threatens everyone's life gets shot by the attorney general's deputy Yes. And then that's it. I mean, yeah, I feel you missed... like all of that definitely happened, but like I'm not sure that that's the whole story. Yeah, no, you missed like a third of the movie. Uh, okay. And also a lot of things that you're like, I guess. I was like, I thought that was super duper clear. Like the things, here are things I did think were confusing. I thought the thing with the little brother somehow getting into a hit and run was super duper confusing where did that woman come from like they're on a rural road at yeah, night exactly and then, like a woman randomly runs out into the street in terms of the plot why doesn't he just hit helen she's like literally right there they're having a fight 
Like, it makes way more sense. It gives her something to do. And instead, there's just this random other woman he hits with his car. He also, like, drives off into the night, and I, like, looked away, and suddenly he was being arrested, and I had to go back. There is a car chase, which I will put, like, in the five things that I liked about this movie. (laughs) Old-timey car chase is hilarious. The fight choreography and the car movement choreography in this movie were deeply troubling to me and were probably one of my five least favorite things about this movie. I mean, I thought that the car chase was hilarious because it was so... Yeah, it was real bad. It was so bad. Did car chases just start with the French connection? Yeah. And, like, all of the car chases before that are are 30 seconds long? <laughs> it started with Billet. Before Billet, there were absolutely no car chases in Good cinema. car chases. Yeah. So so that happens. I mean, it's a noir gangster movie, I guess. I feel like one of the things that really makes it and and the point of this podcast being to like see if things stand the test of time because it is so slang heavy and silent. So you don't get any context as far as like how people are feeling when they say these certain words. A lot of it was very obtuse to me. Like I had to look up what it meant when somebody says that's a horse on you i i don't know i like <laughs> i mean one i am not going to pretend like i got I, that's a horse on you cuz that's fucking nonsense i looked it up the number of discrete meanings that just saying the word horse has in this fucking movie at one point there's just a drunk reporter who just yells horses at his boss and leaves that's supposed to be a scene where I understand something about that character. Yeah, apparently, uh, That's a Horse on You is kind of like, sorry about your luck, dog. I, I got that from context clues. I got a lot from context clues in this movie, I guess. I don't know. To me, what started making the movie confusing was things started moving so rapidly in the back half of the film. There was so many discrete... I have Plan X. Well, character Y has arrived to talk about Plan X. Well, Plan X isn't going to work because of Z. Well, then, I guess I'm on to Plan Z. Wait, what the fuck are we... Like, I... There was... Here's a scene I feel like you left out. Scarzy, like, straight up shoots a police officer in a police station. Oh, yeah, right. I forgot about that. And then blames it on his driver, who's apparently in the penitentiary. Yeah, and, And like... And, like, comes back to the police station and is like, my driver was here, did he do something? There's a degree to which it kind of goes completely off the rails in the back third. I don't know, I thought this was... I, I would have liked this movie okay if it was just really uncomplicated good guy versus bad guy cops and robbers bullshit. Because after like two weeks of that where I hated the good guy and thought the good guy was an awful person, just having a movie where it was like, cops are good, gangsters are bad. Sometimes the cops pull one over on the gangsters. Sometimes the gangsters pull one over on the cops. I'd be like, yes, this is storytelling. This story has a beginning, <laughs> middle, and an end. Excellent work. But then, like, weirdly, as it gets more morally complicated, I got more and more confused, not by the idea that, like, sometimes cops are bad, because I've I've watched the news. Right, duh. But, like, because the reason why sometimes cops are bad, and what they're doing that is bad, and whether the movie thinks it's bad or not, got really deeply confusing to me. Pretty much as soon right. as McQuig started going like, horses to your law, 
and like just doing whatever the fuck he pleased, I was like, well, now we're just playing Calvin Ball. Now I have no idea what anyone is doing or why. And suddenly Helen Hayes is in love with the handsome reporter who has no point to his existence but to be handsome. It feels like this movie should have been two hours long because like the back half in the police station in the middle of nowhere feels like there was had so much character development that they were like, "Eh, it's a silent movie. We can't put in all the lines, just kind of put in all the good stuff. And it was just like this collection of people suddenly declaring changes in allegiance and ideology for fucking no apparent reason. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of like sudden inexplicable drops of interest. Like when the the kid reporter obviously develops this crush on Heaven Heaven Hayes. Helen Hayes, you know, she's now out of jail and everybody's leaving and she's like, I'm not going your way, kid. And he's just like, okay, bye. Like there's no there's no follow-up. And well, and then, well, no, then she comes back and she, well, no, it's like super duper confusing because like she keeps coming back and going away and all the characters keep going back and coming away. It seems like in the play, you got to that stuff at like the end of the first act and like then the entire second act was like this weird exploration of like this one night in a police station where, like, everything about the city's illicit underbelly comes to bear. In the first act, there's all this weird stuff where you, like, just check in on, like, how the newspapers are reacting to this. It, like, had this weird, like, HBO drama, like, The Wire-esque, really, really low-rent The Wire-esque thing where it would just check in from all these different angles for the first 20 minutes. And then it got bored with that and was just like, and now this entire movie takes place... At one police station out in the middle of nowhere. It, it definitely had the two different movies feel to it. Lots of different locations, tons of stuff happening, lots of extras because they had many street scenes, and they have this great funeral scene for the gangster who gets killed in like the first ten minutes or whatever, yeah. which was one of the five things that I really liked about this movie. Oh, the whole nightclub scene is a The great. nightclub scene was okay. The problem is I kept comparing it to the nightclub scene in Wings. Okay, yeah, that's Which fair. had such incredible special effects. And they were drinking champagne out of cocktail glasses, which made my brain want to explode. That's fair. I guess the only thing I really... I liked the choreography of the shootout in the nightclub. I didn't actually particularly love the nightclub scene in general, because there's, like, the weird introduction of Helen Hayes, where she's doing the, like, weird gypsy twin dance with a weird face mask. Yeah. And then her boss is angry at her for, for skipping out on the gypsy twin dance too fast. And she's like, I'm just going to go hit on a gangster. And her boss is like, well, okay, I'm not mad at you anymore. Again, a lot of really weird and explicable character turns in this yeah. film. But one of the things I did really like, and I feel like with all three of these movies, it was sort of the point in cinema history, I guess, where they realized what they could do with double exposure and overlays. And anytime that happens, I'm I'm like, oh, this is cool because they're using the actual art form to make a statement instead of it feeling like trying to put a play on screen. The funeral scene where there's all of the gangsters are lined up in chairs and they all have bowler hats on their laps and then they like fade the bowler hats out and you see they're all holding guns that are like cocked and ready to shoot under their hats. Yeah. I thought that was like, 
okay, this is this is good. We're making a movie, not just putting a play on film. Whereas like the police station really felt like trying to put a play on film. Yeah. Down to the painted sets. Yeah. To me, that is where it falls apart because there's just so much plot in the back half of the movie that just the straight adaptationiness of it just makes it, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. There's no time for any why of any of it. I feel like I texted you, like, I really like this movie, like, right as that started to happen. <laughs> they were like, never mind. I mean, I still kind of like it, just because, like, on a minute-per-minute minute basis, this was an easier film to get through than e- either of the other two for me. But I really, I would have trouble arguing it's better than either of the other two movies that we watched. It's shorter and and painless, neither of which is a particularly complimentary critical adjective to apply to a I film. I think one of the things that really just killed it for me, though, was the music that is not the original music, but is the music that was set to it for when this movie was rediscovered. Because apparently... Fun fact, uh, it was thought that this movie was totally lost, and then when Howard Hughes, who was the producer, died, they found, like, the only extant copy in his house. But whoever did the music for this, it was like they just straight up wrote the most stereotypical, like, jangly, fun, silent movie soundtrack. And it was so jarring because there were times where it was like, this is very dramatic. And it sounds like the entertainer is playing in the background. (laughs) There were like four songs they used over and over and over and over again. Theme for gangster shit is happening from from the racket. Justice theme from the racket. Bitches be crazy theme from the racket. (laughs) And... Like, light comedy, you're supposed to laugh at these reporters who... Honestly, that was really weird to me because the reporter shit was so dark. And never lighthearted. And yet the music for it was always, like, total slapstick while they're making these super, super black comedy jokes that are very dry and, like, not physical at all. It's all, like, super cynical, jaded career reporters. Everything's a fucking crooked. Meanwhile, tinkle dee 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 diddly dee dee boo ba Almost as jarring as the, like, wacky comedy World War One shit from 7th Heaven. <laughs> like, just super weird. <laughs> but to, to address the bitches be crazy part, I felt like Helen Hayes was possibly the sanest person in this movie like i don't think there are any performances in this movie that compare to any of the performances in the other two that we watched but if there's one that comes close it's marie prevost as helen hayes and she's constantly framed as just being totally nuts and the like wacky gold digging showgirl and I suppose, like, in the asylum, the totally sane person is is comparatively crazy. But she, like, really kind of had her shit together more than most. I mean, here's the thing I will say is, like, she had a clear plan at all times. Which was not true of anyone else. No. Especially in, like, the back third. I think it's just that the plan, even from her, would shift really rapidly. There was this weird thing with her 
well, not weird, just a good thing with her where she would, like, with her eyes go, like, well, I guess I need a new plan now. She would just be like, I'll never testify. I guess I've just got a case of the Mondays or just whatever the fuck random ass thing <laughs> they were having people say in 1927. And then the cop would be like, yeah, they're totally going to shoot you either way. And she's like, hmm, eye rays. And then goes, yeah, okay, I guess I'll testify and wanders out. Like, she had this exact same, I will do X. Okay, I'll do the exact opposite of that, I guess, problem of everybody else. It's just like, as a performer, she pulled it off when, like, no one else in the cast. Maybe this is the script. It always felt like it was very clear why she made that decision, whereas everybody else's decisions never felt justified one way or the other it was like oh is it because of honor no well you just completely threw that out the window for reasons i can't see at all i guess i'm mostly just reacting to the just like the i thought really weird romantic plot line between her and the reporter where she would be like nope and then suddenly would be like i feel more deeply for you than i feel about anything but music and then she would be like but also nope and then like i <laughs> I just, like, didn't, did not get what was going on there at all, but in terms of, like, her actual actions motivations, they lined up more than anybody else because it was always acting in self-interest in a way that nobody else was, which made it make a lot more sense. Speaking of the cub reporter. Yes. Played by John Darrow. Okay, he went on to have a pretty long for the time career because he is basically like when strong bad says hot bot handsome face like that's him yeah he's totally charming in the movie has absolutely no character whatsoever other than handsome guy who smiles but he definitely does a really good job at that yeah he's like the naive one but like weirdly everything fucking works out for him like it's very strange i mean i guess because he's just hot bot handsome face that's the thing about the ending is that, like, the ending for, like, a Prohibition-era movie is really dark and despairing. Everything is corrupt, nothing will ever change, the system will kill anything that gets in the way of changing it, no matter what you do. Get up and go to mass in the morning. Yeah, that, that seems about, about right. But also, if you're a young cub reporter who just doesn't notice any of that's going on, maybe you and a hot nightclub singer will hook up. So, I don't know, life is weird. <laughs> um, I really thought the cop completely charmless. Yeah. And totally unnecessarily enigmatic. Because we never got any background about him at all. It was just like, he's the mysterious and reticent, handsome guy who looks good in a suit. But why? Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I guess I kind of like, I took it as like an archetypical thing where he was like supposed to be the like good cop that never bends and therefore doesn't really need a backstory and it's about how like the universe doesn't actually give him what he wants but it's also just not particularly good at fleshing out the backstory of anybody in this movie so i guess i'm being pretty generous yeah but if, if you're gonna have characters who have like no character foundation they at least need to be i think brighter cardboard cutouts scarcy was your typical fleshed out evil gangster guy we don't need a backstory he's got the face with the most yeah. smashed nose i've ever seen in my life this movie has great gangster face casting oh totally 
people who are supposed to look like gangsters in this movie look like gangsters. Yeah, Scarcy's kid brother, who's the schmuck, has the gap between his teeth and like his hair is all flat and his head is kind of small. And it's like, okay, yeah, no, I get that. Fun fact, the guy who plays Scarcy's brother is in Seventh Heaven. Who is he in Seventh Heaven? Is he the, sh- the shit colonel that like is trying to get her to cheat on him? <laughs> No, that guy is super handsome. No, oh. he's the he's sewer rat. Oh. oh, the the other sewer cleaner along with uh, Chico. No, what? Yeah, Chico's yeah, his that name. Is his name. Chico's his it, name, even though that makes be that no guy's sense. Name. It's one hundred percent that guy. It's one hundred percent the name of the French protagonist from the film Seventh Heaven. <laughs> from the American film the, Seventh Heaven. Yes, Seven, yeah. that makes sense. That he's the guy that, like, the entire his entire character arc is having people call him a non-human and then disappearing from the film. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've talked myself into not liking this movie, like, at all in the course of this conversation. Well, I'll talk about things I liked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if that helps. I Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. I loved the shot of the women's cell in the jail it was total proto chicago the musical oh look at all these very well dressed bad girls smoking cigarettes and hanging out i mean it basically sean was sitting on the couch with me and he he said this looks like the lobby of a brothel that they just threw bars on (laughs) and it did but it was also like that it was a great shot one of the things that frustrated me about this movie and why, like, even though it was an hour and a half, it felt interminable to me, was with silent movies, because you have to watch it the whole time in case a title comes up and otherwise you missed it. And this one particularly, because so much happens so fast, there weren't as many artistic shots as there were in, say, Wings, which was all about cinematography. But when they had them, they were great. Yeah, but it it reminded me of, like, shitty movie adaptations of, like, David Mamet plays, where, like, where there would be, like, this moment of, like, and now here's a beautiful shot of the fairy that is representative of, like, urban decay in America. Anyway, back to the actual play, like, and then just this boringly shot, fucking two-shot scene of people talking, because it's a David Mamet play, and that's what the play is. But there were some great shots. The first shot of the women's cell was one of them. The one where the guys are all lined up at the funeral, there were, like, a few good ones. The blocking was pretty good. Again, I will say that specifically- The the nightclub scene. The choreography in the nightclub scene when the other gangsters show up and they, like, position themselves for the shootout is specifically Mm -hmm. the thing that I thought was good. Yeah. I also really liked the opening scene, the threatening McQuig shooting out the window scene. Yeah, they really liked to uh, to shoot windows out in this movie. These were like weirdly bloodless gangsters. The only people they killed, they killed on impulse or accidentally. Yeah, and also the deaths were, uh, there were definitely bloodless. Now that's been, I would say that that's been pretty consistent in the movies that we have watched, except for David's death in Wings, which was very protracted. It wasn't gory or anything, but he was dying forever. But everybody else just like, 
gets shot once, falls down dead. Well, no, there were the weird coughing up blood shots and wings. I will say it had. Oh that. yeah, right, right. Yeah, that looked absolutely nothing like coughing up blood, but that's fine. They they gave it the old college try. I feel like we should we should rate this one because I feel like I'm gonna give it a bad rating now. It's funny because I feel like I talked myself into liking it better, but I'm I'm still gonna give it. I'm gonna give it like. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a one. Out of 10. Wait, you like, you talked yourself into liking it better and you gave it a one? Yeah. Well, I mean, because otherwise it was going to be a zero. Like, I had a really hard time watching this movie. I did, one, I did not even know that was an (laughs) option. I thought like one to 10 meant we were starting at one and going to 10. And I was going to give, what did we give Seventh Heaven? A a three or a four? I gave it a three. You gave it a four. After Wings, you said you might revise it down to a three. I feel like I'm revising it back up to a four to give this a three. Fair, fair. But maybe I'm giving this a two. I don't know. I'm giving like you can give it a three. This is this is not a this is not a good movie, but it's not awful. It's watchable. Like I I really feel like we're going to get to stuff that's even worse than this somehow. Oh, absolutely. Again, Crash. Yes, like that's what I mean. Is like. This movie didn't morally offend me. In fact, it morally seemed kind of interesting to but me. But it, it posits a question that it never in any way explores. It's just like, yup, cops and government officials can be corrupt, but we never really see any of them that are. Well, in the last, like, ten minutes we do. It's weird that it takes that long when it's, like, what right. the play is known for. And I guess it's because, like, it's supposed to be, like, building up to it. Like, did you know that maybe the gangsters are, are, are being propped up by the legitimate establishment? And it's like, I mean, yeah, I did. Yes. From a 2017 point of view, is that shocking? That was shocking in 1927? I wonder if it was, you know, because I feel like the, the newspapers were, like, full of stuff about Al Capone and everything else. Like, were, were people shocked at that? It seems like it. Like, I, th- I think that that's what the Chicago thing is about, is like, we're just not going to even deign to think about this shocking thing where the police might be involved in why prohibition isn't going so great. <laughs> this is what the screen test of time is about, right? Is like, we kind of can't give it a pass for that. We can't go like, no, the movie is secretly good because it's the first gangster movie that implied that there were corrupt cops. No, it's still bad. It is 100% unwatchable as far as recommending it to anyone. If somebody were like, I've got an hour and a half to kill. Should I watch The Racket? I would be like, no. Okay, see, here, here is where I will split with you. One, I will not split with you on that very last part of the <laughs> statement. Don't watch The Racket. But I will say, I think it is perfectly watchable. It's not like a Manos, the hands of fate, like fucking disaster. <laughs> what is even going on? I cannot stand to look at this as a single second more type of thing. It's just like, ah, uh, yeah, that was fine. Like, whatever. That was an hour and a half of my life. I'm not excited by it. I didn't gain anything from watching it. I just feel like I want the very lowest end of the scale to be like, I feel like I actively lost something vital about myself from having to watch this film. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Then I'll revise up to a two because I don't feel like I should, you know, hope there's an afterlife so I can punch Howard Hughes for taking this hour and a half from my life. You know, like it's not that level of unwatchable. It weirdly reminded me of, oh, what was that movie? Honestly, in almost no way, but I'm still going to make this comparison. Okay. 
of I went to go see that uh, the the movie Rough Night because it uh, is by the directing team from uh, Broad City that I really like. It's not a directing team. It's a it's a female director who directs for Broad City, and she is married to uh, the guy that plays Abby's boss at the the fitness center. The, I love like, that guy. Very very handsome. Yeah, and he has a prominent part as Scarlett Johansson's character's fiance. And uh, seems way more interested in the part where he has a complete nervous breakdown and has to wear an adult diaper than the part where he gets to make out with Scarlett Johansson. Um, so that's a, that's a marriage built to last. That's what love is. <laughs> anyway, the point is, it was just okay. It seemed like a movie that was built to kind of like prove that they can make a next movie. This, in that same way, felt like a w- movie that was weirdly like Howard Hughes going like, I can make movies, you guys. Don't even worry about it. More than like actually being g- great or trying for anything particularly difficult. It is weird to me that this got nominated for Best Picture. I assume that there was a lot of politics around that um, because it just doesn't do anything remarkable. But it doesn't really fuck anything up that bad either. And I guess there's usually a slot in the Academy Awards for that. But they only had three this year. When I first found that out, I was like, did eight movies come out in 1927 to 1928? And the answer is no. Like, a shitload of movies came out in those two years. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if maybe it was just like, well, it was really entertaining and people liked it. Yeah, I feel like that was probably it. I like this feels like a thing where like I bet the play was a big right. Hit. It was like when they did the August Osage County movie, and it was like that was really mediocre, but people were still super fucking excited about it because like finally they're making a movie of it. Famous people are in it and everything. I mean, I guess it just was. Uh, it was. It was a smash on Broadway or something. Should we talk about the three movies and decide which one should have won the Oscar? I mean, one, I think we should definitely talk about it right now, and you can, like, decide as the editor whether this is its own, like, spinoff episode or is just the end of this episode. Because I feel like it's, like, we definitely don't have more than five to ten minutes in us on this. Yeah, because there's only three. Like, as we get into the future where there's, like, I I feel like there's almost immediately more than double the number that are nominated. 31-32 has Okay, yeah, but even, like, for 2829 we've got 5. Yeah. So, you know, that that could warrant its own episode maybe. We'll see where, when we get there. But yeah, as far as like which movie should have won best picture and to go over them <laughs> again, yes. Seventh Heaven, which was also based on a play and had a totally killer performance by oh, what was the woman's name? Janet Gaynor as yeah. Diane. Wings, which had really incredible cinematography and was... Apparently they did have handheld cameras back then, huh. and they had them in the movie. Or they used them in the movie, which answers a lot of my questions about how they did things. I don't know how they had handheld cameras, but they had them. And then The Racket, which is this noir gangster movie from 1928. Yeah. So to compare the three, I mean it's I mean it's Wings, right? Like I fucking hate that it's Wings because I really hated Wings. I really it was my least <laughs> favorite movie of the three, but like it's Wings because like everything you could say for one of the other movies, you can say for Wings too. Only it's better. Like it's one of those things where apparently Janet Gaynor got the Best Actress 
award at the 1927 Academy Awards for Seventh Heaven. And it's like, good, she gets the pity award because fucking Clara Bow carries wings and gets it best picture. And the cinematography is better. I would argue the plot isn't better, but like the plot isn't exactly a fucking masterwork in either of the other two either. I don't think the plot of Wings is necessarily better. It's very simple, but I feel like the storytelling of it is better than in either of them. I would make the exact opposite argument. In Seventh Heaven, they're like, oh, well, it's time for the war. We have to leave in an hour. Yeah, but at the same time, in Wings, they're like, well, it's time for the battle. 28 minutes later, I guess we won. What happened in between those two? A lot of shots of planes. A lot of very ambiguous shots of planes followed by title cards telling me what happened. Very pretty ambiguous shots of planes, but very ambiguous shots of planes. Also, I feel like Wings used title cards to tell a lot of the story to a pretty good effect. I, I, I think it had the best title cards because it had very poetic title cards that talked about, like, interior lives in a right. way that, like, the title cards in the other two didn't. The other two really had very clearly adapty title cards that were like, here are the big lines. Every time somebody says one of the big lines, we're going to have a title card. And Wings was like, meanwhile, deep in the soul of David, something stirred. And it's like, okay. <laughs> And, and there was a lot of very, like, pseudo-Shakespearean Henry V, now all the youth of England is on fire type of stuff that was in Wings. Yeah. It was all patriotic and we're going to war and, and quoting Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> oh man, that opening. The Academy made the right choice in that of these three movies, it was the best movie. But I feel like I'm not arguing that we watch the other, like, 40 movies that came out this year that you can find a print of somewhere but i feel like somewhere in there there's a better movie than wings you yeah know? i mean that's that's fair unfortunately or rather fortunately we're not going to watch every movie that came out in any given year yeah no that's what we're gonna do after the 10 years of this podcast are over when we've got to like really stretch it out is just go back and watch every movie ever made so yeah i, I think that the I, I can say that the academy award for best picture should have gone to wings which yeah. it did. And I will say that you should watch it. And David will say that you should not. Do, do not watch it. Don't, don't watch it. There's like a, there's a better Clara Bow picture out there, right? Like what, a, what I else mean, do we it, got? It Girl is like, or It, I think, which was the one that made her the It Girl, which we now use. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen it, but she's adorable. So like, I would basically watch her in anything. Also, she's in a movie called Man Trap, and like 100% <laughs> yes. Definitely watch a movie with Clara Bow in it called Man Trap before you watch Wings. But if you just exhaust yourself of all other Clara Bow movies, and you really just just need one last hit, yeah. would you say watch Wings? <laughs> I would say watch only the Clara Bow scenes of Wings. Okay, so like under certain conditions. <laughs> I'd say watch all of the Clara Bow scenes of Wings and then skip everything else. No, that's not true. All right. The, the cinematography on the fucking planes is great. Susan, what is our what what is our first movie from the 1928-1929 Academy Awards? Or yeah, that's oh, right. That's a that's a very good question. I would like to go ahead and say though that there there is something we have to address about 1928-1929, okay. which is that even though we say in the podcast we watch every movie ever nominated for best picture, 
There is one we can't watch because it is lost to history, and that is The Patriot, which was nominated in 1928. So instead we will be watching Mel Gibson's The Patriot. <laughs> oh my god, we will not be. And then... Do, do we have to watch that at some point? I don't think so. Please tell me we don't. Okay, good. It was never nominated. Good. I've actually seen that movie and it is not good. No, it is very not good. It's just Braveheart except we just decide to it's just Braveheart. It's just a very bad Braveheart. Yeah, it's just it's just Braveheart in America. Man, if they called that movie Braveheart 2 Coming to America. <laughs> I may have liked it better. It would have made the like British burning the church scene a lot more hilarious, I'll tell you that right now. In both movies, the British are the bad guys. And in much of history, really. The first one of the next next year of nominees is in Old Arizona. Yes, it is. Which I'm excited about because it's a talkie. I mean, that is exciting, but I also love that it has a one-sentence plot synopsis on Wikipedia with the title in it. A bandit attempts to escape a sheriff while falling in love with a beauty in old Arizona. Well, it's definitely going to be amazing. Uh, but yeah, we will talk more about that next week. And congratulations to Wings for standing the screen test of time. And congratulations to Clara Bow for fucking carrying that movie on your back <laughs> with your very attractive shoulders. All right. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.